Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While the ArriveCan app may no longer be mandatory, and other remaining air travel requirements and restrictions in Canada could also soon be removed. Are Canadians ready for that? How have young men in society fallen victim to online radicalization? Michael Kempa, who's an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa, will join to talk about that. And what are some of the key moments that came out of the Queen's funeral this week? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Prime Minister is in New York City today uh, for the opening session for the United Nations. Uh, the head of the UN says education is the single most important investment any country can make in its people and in its future. Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez, of course, has a, says that education has a vital role to play in helping young people separate fact from fiction. At a time of rampant misinformation, climate denial and attacks on human rights, we need education systems that distinguish fact from conspiracy, instill respect for science, and celebrate humanity in all its diversity. Well, that's going to be one of the uh, the focus points, I guess, that the Prime Minister is going to make today, because I know one of the sessions he's going to be involved in is uh, Canada's pledge to eliminate terrorist and violent extremist content online, uh, which has certainly become a problem. But there's a whole other couple of baskets of stuff that they need to be dealing with in the session and we look at what's going on globally so how effective can canada be in this enterprise to try to to bring peace to ukraine and try to address some of the major problems facing the the world today uh to discuss this please to welcome back to the program uh, oral brown who is a professor in international relations and a senior member of the monk school of global affairs at the university of toronto <clears throat> professor a pleasure to have you back in the program thanks so much for the time today well thank you let me ask you right up front, over the last number of years, of course, the United Nations has come under a great deal of criticism from many circles right now, suggesting that it's just not up to the task of what needs to be done these days. You look at the global conflicts, especially in Ukraine, and some of the problems that uh, the, the, the Secretary General just talked about, about uh, education, certainly, but about you know food sources and things of this nature. Are you optimistic that, that, that the UN can actually get a handle on some of these things and offer some viable solutions to the problems facing the world? I would like to be optimistic, but unfortunately, that would be to use the cliche, the triumph of hope over experience. Uh, the United Nations has set, has basically failed in its central mission. And what happened in Ukraine uh, may make that failure uh, uh, so large that it may not be able to overcome it. A similar failure had occurred in the case of the League in 1935. The League of Nations never recovered from it. The United Nations has become this vast, extraordinarily expensive organization. And uh, this forum that uh, will be used today in the next uh, uh, number of days, the United Nations General Assembly, uh, is a forum where all of the countries are represented. And that, in general, ought to be something positive. But the record, the record of what the United Nations is doing, what it has meant to do, is one that is a massive, massive disappointment. We must not forget that the central mission of the United Nations has been the prevention or, or at least the suffocation of conflict. It was to provide the world with collective security. That has not ha happened. Uh, Russia invaded Ukraine not only in 2040, but now massively, and it has done so with impunity. Because the way the United Nations is structured, that the General Assembly is not able to have binding resolutions. Only the Security Council can pass binding resolutions. But they are subject to a veto. And they are subject to a veto in the case of the permanent members. And China and Russia are permanent members. So it's, it's really structured to fail, isn't it? It's hard to be optimistic. Uh, uh, as to what the United Nations can do. We can talk about certain functional elements of the United Nations, but many of those things could be could be done or could have been done at a much lower cost uh, and perhaps equally or even more successfully. Let's take one example. There's a, uh, an organization that uh, ought to be playing a very important role right now, and this is the International Atomic Energy uh, Agency. It is an autonomous organization, and there is a very real danger in Ukraine because the Russians have occupied the largest uh, atomic energy 
uh, electrical energy producing plant in Europe, uh, and they've endangered it. There's a, a real risk that there could be an utter catastrophe there. The IAEA has been unable to resolve that problem. So if we move along the spectrum where we ask the questions about the central role of the United Nations, and it has clearly failed in that, that is to provide collective security. And then we move at some of the key functional organizations. Even there, there is deep disappointment. So now there's going to be discussion about the war in Ukraine, about climate change, about nuclear disarmament. But we need to ask ourselves, what is the message, for example, about nuclear disarmament? There was in 2004, and we had discussed this on the show a number of times, the Budapest Memorandum, uh, uh, or sorry, in, uh, in 1994. And Ukraine was persuaded to give up what at that point was the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world that they had inherited from the Soviet Union. And they gave that up in exchange for guarantees or at the very least uh, assurances that its territorial integrity would be respected. Those assurances were provided by the United States, Britain, as well as uh, Russia. And of course, the United Nations should have been interested in this. Well, that clearly has not, not occurred. So what is the message to those countries that want to proliferate, such as Iran? Well, don't give up nuclear weapons if you have them. And if you're a rogue state, try to get them because that will give you international immunity and you can act domestically with impunity. So with the situation that we're in right now, and, and I want to expand this, I know that you know the press release we saw from a number of the leaders, uh, not just our prime minister, but uh, also from uh, New Zealand's prime minister, of course, uh, and Ardern and, and others, uh, they're talking about fighting AIDS, tuberculosis and malaria, global diseases, and which is a, a wonderful idea and a great and worthy goal. Uh, but there seems to be an awful lot of talk and not a whole lot of action here, though, Professor. And I think that's the concern that a lot of people have. And as you say, uh, they can pontificate all they want about what's going on in Ukraine. But, it, but just about all the problems they're going to be talking about now, it all comes back to what's going on in Ukraine right now. Food supply issues, of course, especially in Europe and Africa because of what's happened with Ukraine and, and the Russian blockade that was set up there for so long. Uh, until they resolve that issue, a lot of these other things here are still going to fester, aren't they? They are, and they have. And when uh, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres talked about in these uh, uh, moving terms about that this is a time of great peril, that the world is blighted by war, battered by climate change, scarred by hate, and shamed by poverty, hunger, and inequality, these are not resolved. They haven't been resolved. There is food insecurity. And yet there are leaders from some of these countries that suffer from food insecurity, and they're going to be staying at the United Nations in $1,400 a night rooms. How does that square with a real effort? We talk about climate change, and China and uh, India, which have uh, well over a third of the world's population, are buying massive amounts of fossil fuels at reduced rates uh, from Russia and are burning that. China is burning... Uh, ever larger amounts of coal because it's it's inexpensive and that uh, is going to have a horrible impact on the climate uh, and uh, some of that impact is visible to anyone who visits New Delhi or some of the cities in, in, in China and so all of these important uh, issues and they are important climate is a crucial issue as is war, as is hunger, as is poverty, they are not being resolved at the United Nations. And so we uh, want to applaud any small progress, but we have to ask a fundamental question. Do you need to have a Rolls Royce to deliver pizza? Uh, do you need to have an organization that is this expensive, where so much hope has been invested to do things that could be done much more effect effectively uh, by specialized agencies uh, and at a much uh, lower cost. The United Nations is an extraordinarily large and expensive organization. And if we don't insist that it fulfills its central mission, then all the other matters on the periphery 
will not save the United Nations. I mean, what they're going to be doing starting today and, of course, going on for this session in the General Assembly, in hindsight, Professor, when we look at, at the track record for the UN over the last number of years, uh, the General Assembly is really just for show. I mean, people will make speeches, and you know, sometimes to large crowds, sometimes not so large, uh, depending, on, I guess, who the world leader is. But the only work, such as it is, that the UN seems to do is at the Security Council, isn't it? The Security Council is the organization that has the power to pass binding resolutions. And uh, the late uh, uh, senator, who was also the ambassador to the, United, to the United Nations, Patrick Moynihan, was so frustrated at one point with the General Assembly that he called it the theater of the absurd. And if we listen closely, we'll see that there are countless resolutions directed largely at one country, uh, ignoring uh, what is happening in North Korea or what is happening in Russia or Iran. It is a case where you have some of the worst abusers of human rights who will be condemning Canada uh, or, uh, or France or, 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 or Britain. So um, no organization is free of hypocrisy. But at the General Assembly, uh, uh, the level of hypocrisy is is absolutely, absolutely glaring. And the ineffectiveness overall of the United Nations uh, raises very, very, very major uh, questions as to um, when people uh, say, well, if we did not have the United Nations, we'd have to invent it. Well, would we invent the same organization if we did it now? Uh, absolutely. I, I don't see how they could. And and I know we have to put this in context. As you mentioned, this whole concept, uh, I mean, the League of Nations failed, which led to World War. Uh, and after World War II, of course, they decided to give it another shot and call it the United Nations. But people tend to forget in, in those days, Professor, uh, Russia was considered an ally. I mean, they were at least during World War II anyway. Uh, and China was just an emerging power. But the fact that they have vetoes on the Security Council as permanent members, in hindsight, was a big, big mistake. And I, I can't see how you can get anything done. But on the other hand, even if they decided that they wanted to to reshape the way the UN Security Council works right now, you're not going to be able to do it because Russia and China are simply going to say no. So where are we then? They will not give up the veto. Neither will the United States. Uh, of course not, uh, yeah. We, 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 we must appreciate the fact that... Uh, uh, several countries were insistent, the large powers, when the United Nations was formed in San Francisco in 1945, the large powers insisted that they should retain this kind of privilege. And once that was built into the United Nations system, that uh, was in many ways a crucial flaw that is almost impossible to transcend. But at first there appeared to be at least sufficient goodwill as you said, that Russia had been an ally, that there would be cooperation among the powers that uh, hold the veto. But now, when you have this kind of conflict between Russia and uh, Ukraine and, and the Western world, when you have China led by a leader who has almost unlimited ambitions, then you have the kind of geopolitical divisions and confrontations that make the veto an, an immobilizing uh, factor in the United Nations. And uh, it's one thing for the Secretary General to outline all of these glaring problems and his right to do so. But then what is the United Nations going to do about it substantively? Well, I, yeah, I wish I had an answer for that. Uh, I'm, you know, my first exposure to the United Nations, I, I remember as a kid, uh, was the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, because there was almost all day coverage of what was going on there, uh, because we were led to believe, and I think we were possibly on the verge of, of World War, World War III, nuclear war. Uh, Canada, by the way, at that time, just to remind our listeners, actually had a seat of the Security Council back in those days. Uh, George Ignatieff was the uh, the, the uh, Canadian representative on the Security Council back in those days. Uh, but that was then, and this is now. Here we are in 2022, uh, and you look at what's happening in Ukraine, you look at what China's doing right now in, in, in that area of the world, are we right back where we started in 1962 on the brink of, of like one one misstep away from somebody pulling the trigger? I hope that is not not the case, that uh, uh, countries in the world have learned the dangers of nuclear war. But you will hear on occasion the concern expressed by various leaders that Russia, uh, if it is losing the war, might try to use a nuclear weapon. I think that would be a huge mistake. 
uh, President Biden uh, went out to warn Russia, which in itself, I think, was a mistake because you don't need to pass that warning. Russia knows that it would be suicidal, and, and uh, Mr. Putin is not not suicidal. But you do have a danger of proliferation in the case of uh, powers that it would be very difficult to deter, such as Iran, which are driven by a leadership with a fanatical ideology that sees a reward in an afterlife. That uh, makes deterrence extraordinarily difficult. When you look at the Cuban Missile Crisis, deterrence worked. But deterrence involves a psychological relationship where the parties involved do the same kind of calculation as to risks and benefits. Uh, which worked then. I'm not so sure it's working now. I just, I, I'm, I'm skeptical as you are because I, I know that we're facing many problems and we've heard the Secretary General and a number of the other leaders who have gathered in New York right now talking about world poverty and hunger and, and talking about disease and climate control. And I'm not short-shifting any of those. Those are all very important. Uh, but global peace right now and, and settling some of these conflicts that are happening uh, and, and the concern about Taiwan, the concern about Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera, I would hope is going to be job one. But I guess the thing I find frustrating about this, though, Professor, is very few of them have even talked about that it, as if they figured, well, I can't really do anything about it. We hope it gets better, but it's not going to happen at the, at the United Nations. That's that's rather daunting, isn't it? It, it is, and it's extremely frustrating, and uh, it is frustrating in the case of many people of goodwill have committed to the United Nations. One can understand, understand that a great deal of hope has been invested in this organization, but we also need to be uh, re realistic. Uh, and so um, when we have the current situation where the United Nations has proven itself to be absolutely impotent in the face of brazen, naked, naked aggression, uh, of a frontal violation of international law, of an inducement to nuclear proliferation, then you cannot just have a talking shop. We cannot afford to do that. We need to demand that there be something of substance done or that it should be changed with that, with that organization. Uh, this is not, as I said a number of times, an inexpensive enterprise. Um, and so when you invest that much time, when we invest uh, so much in terms of funding, that means that we cannot do it in other areas. It takes away from, from uh, our ability to do good in other areas. Um, it is wonderful that now for the first time since COVID, so many world leaders are going to be at the United Nations. But you will notice that uh, President Xi of China will not bother to attend. Vladimir Putin is not going to bother to attend. So the tough question that we need to ask about the United Nations yield unpleasant answers. Sadly. Uh, well, we, I guess don't give up hope. That's the one thing I guess we have to maintain here. Professor, I, we're just about out of time. Thank you so much for this today. I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you for having me on. That's uh, Professor Oral Brown, of course, from uh, University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Very important topic we want to talk about because uh, it's a, a concern about radicalization, uh, not just on a political level, but also a, a societal level about people's attitudes towards each other sometimes. And you wonder, how do people become that way? I mean, nobody is born that way. I mean, it, there's, there's obviously a process that seems to happen here. Well, it was an interesting study done that uh, was reported on CBC about this a little while ago about radicaliz ra radicalization and how it's actually done and how young men especially are being pulled into it these days. And uh, to discuss this, uh, pleased to welcome back to the program, Michael Kempa, uh, Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa. Professor, a pleasure to have you back with us. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. We read about these groups, we read about uh, we who these people are, and you wonder how, how can people get attracted to such radical ideas? And, and there's a process that I guess... Uh, from what the experts are, are describing here, Professor, it starts out rather benignly and, and, and kind of goes in steps, doesn't it? Well, that is absolutely the case. For young and old, it starts off with usually some sort of sense of grievance. So people are angry about something or other. And these are the hook issues that radical political groups use to start pulling people into their orbit. So, you know, COVID and isolation and economic shutdowns and vaccine mandates these were wonderful hook issues 
for organizations to start finding hundreds of thousands of angry people and attracting them to their cause. So that's young and old, but for the young specifically, obviously we all know that adolescents don't have a stable sense of identity. They go all over the place experimenting, trying on different identities through adolescence. For those groups, when they're targeting young people, they go after that sense of lack of self-concept, lack of sense of belonging, isolation, and they pull their malleable identities in the direction of their ideologies. But at first they have to gain their trust, don't they? They do, and they start small. It's sort of, they call it a drip method of, of recruitment. And the unfortunate challenge we face now is it's so much easier for adherence to these groups to reach out to young people. I mean, you know, basically in the old days, they'd have to get pamphlets into the hands of young people, whether at protests or outside shopping centers and so forth. Obviously, mass communications technology, it's very easy. Social media, big one. The other one that many people don't think about is game rooms, online gaming rooms, where young people disappear for hours on end. I mean, their parents have very little concept of who they're interacting with or what they're even doing in virtual reality. And they can be reached out to by people who are playing along in violent games and so forth, where they start exchanging uh, you know, spoken communication and encouraging them to sign up for this or that website or, or discussion group, and away they go. So you develop that level of trust and, and, and maybe, as you mentioned, even participate in something that, uh, that uh, this individual is, is a, whether it's games or something else, but there's an interest there. So you share that common interest, you develop a bond, uh, and then they move it on to the next level. Like, hey, you should check, you feel that way about this? You should check that website out. There's a lot of good stuff on there. And you'll do that. Uh, and I guess one thing leads to another then, does it? Absolutely. And they exploit, I mean, there's a natural sense of, of rebellion, obviously, in young people. Uh, it's part of building your own self-concept. You rebel against your parents. You deliberately seek out sort of edge behaviors to irritate older people, whether we're talking about music expression, use of, of la bad language, crazy fashions. I mean, this is not news to anybody, but that rebellious nature of, of adolescent people, it's exploited by people who say, you know, why don't you come out to this protest? And, you know, it's against something that's simple to understand. It's against tyranny or it's against the oppressive capitalist system. I mean, even though we're not really necessarily up on the details of what all that means, it's appealing to rebellious young people. And maybe they start by going to a rally. They meet people. They, the people that they meet express sympathy for the young person, saying, you know, you might say something, particularly young males. They'll say, oh, I'm sure you're feeling excluded uh, at your school. There's so much talk about girl empowerment, empowerment female empowerment. Well, what about us boys, they might say to young people. I mean, this is a ridiculous message, but it resonates with teenagers who may be feeling alienated, even if that's not necessarily the reality that they face. So when you're in a situation like that and you're feeling vulnerable, and, and as you say, as, as if you know, the world is against you, uh, you run into somebody else who feels the same way, even if they don't feel the same way, but if they say they feel that way, uh, you, you're drawn to them, aren't you? Absolutely. I mean, even before we had this as a major problem for the recruitment of young people into political radical groups on either the far right or the far left, I would add, it was the same dynamic for gang activities for many decades. I mean, young people who may or may not have stable family environments, who may or may not have a good schooling experience, young people will seek out membership in some group somewhere. And if they don't get it in the conventional system... They'll find it in gangs, perhaps, and gangs recruit their members in a very similar type of way. They appeal to the common sense of, of where they've been let down or the common grievance, and they provide an outlet for all of these emotions outside of the mainstream. This is not a new problem, but it's something that's new applied to radical political groupings. And, and that's how, I, I'm sure happened even pre computers and, and internet, I guess, uh, Professor. I mean, you know, is, when we were growing up, I mean, everybody, as you say, wanted to belong. You wanted to be with the cool people, if if possible. And if not, then you'd start your own subset uh, just so that you had somebody or something. Uh, and but it, as you say, it had to be a face to face situation back in those days. You know, you'd see somebody in the playground or somebody, you know, at, at the the, the 
restaurant or something where you used to hang out. But it's so much easier now to simply go on there and through one of these websites, or as you say, one of these gaming uh, programs, and all of a sudden you've got that audience. Well, that's it. In my line of work, we talk about deviance pathways. So people who are not part of the mainstream or don't find acceptance, they end up following along one deviance pathway or another, and where they go has a lot to do with opportunity. So, for example, you can't get into organized crime, the mafia, let's say, unless you have an actual opportunity. You know someone who wants to groom you in that direction. If that's not available to you, perhaps street gang life is available to you. If you don't live in an area where street gangs are active, maybe you'll simply withdraw and get into a substance abuse subculture. The problem with hypercommunications technology is it's massively expanded that opportunity structure to recruit people into radical political movements. And it's very much the flavor of the day. I cannot stress enough, COVID-19 and all of the extremely confusing state responses to that virus that pandemic, have provided an almost perfect hook for people with bad intentions to recruit people to their so-called freedom movements, whether we're talking about coming from the right or the extreme left. And as, as I was looking at the uh, the case study that we saw on CBC about this, uh, the, the, the victim, I, I think it's probably applicable to call this, this young guy a, a victim, uh, you know, as he's going through these chat rooms and talking to people, I mean, the messages, as he described them, were subliminal. I mean, as you say, you know, if you think this vaccine mandate is awful, yeah, you talk about that, talk about that, but you slide in, well, it could be misogynist ideas, it could be ra- ra- racial idea, any number of different things, homophobic ideas, uh, and that it kind of becomes part of the conversation, and eventually they swing over where it dominates the conversation, and I guess to that point, I guess it dominates the, the mindset, I guess, of the victim. And they are victims. You're right to say that, because when we're talking about these movements, they're obviously not coordinated, massive organizations. So the far right is not one grouping organized. It's cells and cells and cells, each of which has little local influencers. And it's the same with the far left. I mean, if we talk about people love to talk about Antifa, you know, there is no Antifa organization There are many, many overlapping cells of people who identify with Antifa, some of whom are not very offensive and some of whom are uh, uh, quite radical in terms of pushing violence and an anarchist-type agenda. Now, that's arguably not very positive either. So young people who are pulled in, think about all of those little cells. Who benefits in the cells? The people who run those little cells, sometimes they make money out of these cells, But in every case, they get status. They're little kingpins in their local cell who get a high degree of status from running a network of people who have been recruited to the cause. It's no different from paramilitary organizations. When you want to dismantle these things, you think about, say, either the Irish Republican Army uh, or, or similar organizations around the world. One of the difficulties in dismantling those organizations is the little local kingpins of cells have a high degree of status in the community for running their little cell. They are victimizing people in, in aligning them with a cause that may have run its sort of legitimate course, if it ever had one. I mean, there are aspects, anti-fascism, you could be an anti-fascist without being a member of a radical anarchist cell that calls itself an Antifa cell. You can be a champion of liberty without being a member of some far-right political organization that runs a cell on the ground. But being pulled into those furthest radical agendas, unfortunately, does make you a victim. So I know some people are going to listen to this conversation, Professor, and say, well, why, why doesn't the victim just turn it off then? This is wrong. This is I don't want to go down that road. But is, is it an irresistible, almost vortex that gets sucked into? Well, they call it a drip method for a reason. You know, it's a bit like being boiling a lobster. They don't start off on full temperature. And once you start going down that pathway and being indoctrinated and socialized into that system, well, obviously your perspective starts to shift and it starts to make sense to you. Uh, you know, cults work the same way. You don't start off with the most radical agenda. You only introduce that agenda once people have been reprogrammed. Their frame of reference has been completely rearranged. You know, a lot of it 
you can go so far as to say it gets to the level of the neurological. I mean, when you've been cognitively reprogrammed, anybody who knows anything about cognitive behavioral therapy will tell you that certain aspects of your thinking pathways have been rewired. It is that difficult to deprogram people who have started going or have gone far down those particular pathways. And if you've got somebody who's feeling isolated and lonely, uh, they they will gravitate to something like this. They may not like it at first. I guess it's like, you know, I, I, 99.9% of the people I know that, that smoke said, you know, it was peer pressure, you know, because the, the cool people were doing it. And nobody likes it at first, but you figure, I got to get, I got to do this. And eventually you get used to it. And you, well, there's a, a chemical thing going on there too. But I guess to, you could argue that there's a chemical thing that happens here too in the extreme cases but that you, you can't help yourself after a while. That becomes who you are. Well, that's exactly right, and I mean, uh, and this is not unconscious. The big tobacco has run a, a very careful, almost in a sense, a radicalization program of, of, of youthful smokers over many decades, whereas you say what is objectively an unpleasant practice is programmed as either a cool thing or a macho thing or a sexy thing or whatever. It's the same with the socialization process for radical political movements and gang activity and organized crime. And then there's typically some sort of, at a certain point that they've got their hooks into you, there is a moment where they will pressure you into committing a kind of more serious point of no return act, like an initiation. And once you've done that, then they really have got you. So in gangs, this can often be either a major crime or a murder, perhaps, um, in, in, a, in a type of radical political movement. It could be a certain act of political violence. You know, maybe you're being asked to go to the home of an opponent to your ideology to either do some damage or harass them. And once you've done that, I mean, we know everything from socialization. That's a very much a point of confirmation. In your own mind, you have to justify to yourself why you've done it. And it must be because the cause you've aligned with is so valuable. You've got to deal with that dissonance one way or another. and You can't just say, well, I did this crazy thing. No, I committed to doing this thing because my cause is so worthwhile. And the people who are doing this socialization are very sophisticated. A bit like Big Tobacco is very sophisticated in how they manipulate smokers. As parents uh, who are listening to this right now, uh, I mean, how do they, how do they control this? How do they look for signs? I mean, in the old days, pre you know, when there was one computer in the house, uh, remember the advice then, Professor was always, well, put it in the living room or something, so parents can kind of look over the shoulder and see what their their kids are actually looking at on the computer. You can't do that anymore. So, so what are what are the signs and what can parents do uh, if they see that the child may be going down this road? The biggest one is. If- it's when children are showing signs of isolation and simply gravitating more and more online. Uh, it almost seems trite or basic good parenting. But, I mean, parents cannot control the immediate behavior of their children. They definitely have influence over the context of their children's lives. It's very important to set up involvement for children in their communities, in their schools, in their positive peer groups, put children into situations and adolescents into situations where they have legitimate ways to connect. If you see your child or adolescent withdrawing more and more time online, you have cause for concern. Ask them about what they're looking at. Don't necessarily start with the argument because people will shut down. If your child is putting out uh, beliefs to you that you find alarming or upsetting, You can't just shut them down and scream at them. That's the worst way, obviously, to persuade a young person. Debate them on it, engage them on it, and start putting them into environments that challenge those beliefs. You are literally engaging in deprogramming as a parent, which cannot be accomplished through one simple argument or threat. Well, especially because it's so easy to substantiate uh, those views. Because, let's face it, they're going to direct that 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 victim uh, to websites that are going to be amenable to that that theory or that mindset, and uh, so you know, it's reinforcement, isn't it? It's very much the case. Uh, the most effective way to persuade anybody, obviously, is to provide them with context and evidence that they themselves can go through that contradicts their beliefs. So, I mean, there are obviously many, many lies on far-right websites. There are many, many lies on far-left websites. 
give your children the actual evidence that shows that these things are false. You know, the great example that came from the study reported on CBC is quotes, alleged quotes from the Quran that declare war on Western civilization. Well, if you were to provide your child with an English translation of the Quran, you would find that those quotes simply are not in the Quran. I mean, that's pretty powerful for showing somebody that they've been misled. Uh, it's a real problem, uh, and it's this is not in the hypothetical. This is happening, and, and I'm so glad you had some time to talk to us about this today, Professor. Thank you so much. Thank you kindly. That's uh, Michael Kempo, Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa. And uh, the signs are there. I, and the key point, I think, the professor just talked about there. I mean, if if you see them all of a sudden changing their points of view or using radical ideas and you figure, where did that come from? Uh, best you try to get an answer to that question instead of just passing it off. Anyway, uh, interesting topic. And thank you so much, Professor, for your time. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It was a, a very emotional day, uh, not just in London, England yesterday, but of course, uh, right around the world as uh, the royal family uh, finally laid Queen Elizabeth II to rest after 10 days of mourning. A burial service, of course, uh, private burial service was held just for the family uh, last evening in uh, Windsor. Uh, millions and millions of people watched across the world, though, as her state funeral started, of course, at Westminster Abbey and uh, Global's. Redmond Shannon was there. Here's his report. Early in the dark and chilly morning, the very last member of the public filed past the coffin of Queen Elizabeth, lying in state. A short time later, the first of around 2,000 guests ushered in to Westminster Abbey. U.S. President Joe Biden, France's Emmanuel Macron, and then Commonwealth realm leaders, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Then, Queen Elizabeth began the first stage of her last journey, her coffin followed by King Charles and senior royals and watched by thousands crammed into central London under the tightest of security. Inside the Abbey, a farewell from a world that can barely remember any other British monarch. Queen Elizabeth leaves Westminster Abbey for the last time. The ancient church in which she was married and where she was crowned queen almost 70 years ago. Redmond Shannon, Global News, London. Uh, it wasn't just the Prime Minister and his uh, contingent that were there representing Canada. You may have seen at the beginning of the procession, uh, as it moved uh, out of Westminster Abbey, uh, RCMP, uh, actually four members of the RCMP musical ride, uh, were right at the front of that. Uh, and there were another a group of Hamiltonians that were there too, uh, representing the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders. And there was a very special reason for them to be there too. Uh, to talk about this and to talk about uh, the general feeling about what happened uh, over the last 10 days, I'm pleased to welcome back to the program Ron Foxcroft, the CEO of Fluke Transport and Fox 40, of course, uh, but also uh, past honorary colonel of the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders. Uh, Ron, great to have you back. Uh, we were all watching in various stages yesterday. Uh, and it was uh, a proud moment to know that the Argyles were there as well. And there's a very special reason for that, wasn't there? Absolutely, uh, Bill. Thank you for uh, bringing that up. Uh, we, as members of the Argyle Highlanders of Canada Regiment, have a, a great source of pride because Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, of course, was our Colonel-in-Chief. And uh, very, very active Colonel-in-Chief, very, very proud Colonel-in-Chief. She was the uh, Colonel-in-Chief, actually, since, um, well, actually for 72 years. Before she was the Queen, mm -hmm. she was appointed Colonel-in-Chief of the Argyle Regiment in Hamilton, Ontario, by her father, who was king at the time. So she was a princess and assumed the position as Colonel-in-Chief. I might say when we met with her following the uh, funeral of uh, Corporal Nathan Cirillo, she uh, communicated to us that she did serve as the Colonel-in-Chief with enormous pride. So we had a lot of reasons to be proud in that we were represented in the funeral and um, by by some people and and very very fitting. Uh honorary colonel, uh lieutenant colonel uh Glenn DeCare was there, our our commanding officer uh, Carlo Titarelli, uh Scott Balanson, the the pipe major, uh, you know, from the famous Balanson family, Joan Balanson today is still a, a great leader in Hamilton, but still a member of the Argyle Senate. 
Scott Balanson, I must tell you, Bill, his son, Max, met Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth when he was six years old in Hamilton. If you can imagine that, uh, Max today is in his mid-20s and is a professional hockey player. But he had the opportunity to meet Her Majesty when he was six. So Scott was there, uh, Mark Brewster was there, Eric Corkin was there. And, um, you know, the, the whole pomp and ceremony, on top of the fact that the Argyles were represented, was a, an example of um, efficient planning, execution, and bill security. I can't even imagine the planning that went into the security for that funeral. It was just remarkable, uh, the number of people that were there. I, I just want to r- roll back for a second, though, about uh, her relationship with the Argos. And as you mentioned, it was her father that did, gave her that, that appointment uh, when she was princess. And she didn't just, you know, say thanks, Dad, and put it in a drawer someplace. My understanding is that that's one of her first trips uh, was to Canada and to visit uh, the regiment. This is while she was still a princess. Uh, I know we talk about the number of visits as queen, but she was over here. She wanted a hands-on. She wanted to see what you guys were doing uh, at the armories, of course, and uh, and make that visit in person as opposed to simply. It, it was not an honorary title for her. She she was uh, the working head of the of this this regiment, wasn't she? It was an active title, Bill, and and you know uh, she made twenty two visits to Canada, and she communicated to us when we had an audience in her apartment. She said, "I love Canada." I respect the Argyles. I love Canadian people. Canada's my second home. The other thing she said, being a proud colonel-in-chief of the Argyles, she was active, Bill. She came to Canada. She took part in the uh, presenting of the colors and many other ceremonies around the Argyle Regiment. But she did say when we had that audience, and I was with Colonel Kennedy and and uh, Colonel Hatfield at the time, and she turned to us and said, you know, I'm the proud Colonel-in-Chief of the Argyles, and I'm not biased. The best trained reservists in the military are Canadians. Bill, that was a very proud heartthrob for us that the Queen, uh, and, and so we were well represented proudly the argyles there was one thing i'm i'm sad about our current honorary colonel is glenn gibson yep and through a little glitch in government paperwork and and bill glenn's a friend of yours and mine vice chairman of the tiger cats he's done all the heavy lifting for as being the honorary colonel i know it's a very important job it's a heavy job He's done all the colonel, uh, the heavy lifting for us at the Argyle since 2017. And through this little tiny uh, glitch, um, he was not able to go to England. And that has made us sad. However, it is significant that um, Honorary Lieutenant Colonel Glenn DeCare was there because he played a very important, integral part in Nathan Cirillo's, the planning of Nathan Cirillo's funeral, which was mm-hmm. a, a huge undertaking. Uh, Glenn DeCare was the chief of police, Bill, if you recall, I back sure in 2014. And there was a lot of planning that went into uh, the Nathan Cirillo funeral so that we would properly send off our hero, Corporal Nathan Cirillo, uh, showing respect for his wonderful family, his son Marcus, his mother uh, Catherine, and his two sisters. So I think it's terrific that uh, Carlo Titarelli was there, our CEO, Glenn DeCare, uh, significance there, and of course Scott Balanson, the Balanson family, as I said earlier, have done so much for Canada, for the military, for the Argyles, and right to this day, Joan Balanson makes a significant contribution to the Argyle Senate. You know, we've talked about the military history here in the city, uh, down at the armories, and, and of course you've got the, the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry and, and the Argyles. 
uh, that are both have a presence there. Uh, but as I learned more about the history here, though, Fox, I was just amazed. I, I remember uh, it was, I guess it was three, four years ago, Rebecca and I were over in, in Edinburgh uh, on a legal thing, a legal conference. Anyway, we did that same walk that uh, that uh, the Queen and the Cortage did from uh, from a holy route uh, all the way up the what they call the Royal Mile uh, to St. Giles Church, which is a great old church. I guess many people saw that on TV. And we must have spent well over an hour in St. Giles. It's really a historical uh, church, but I mean, it's it's just filled with with plaques and stories about what went on with the number of regiments. And that, I, I remember I texted you that morning and sent back yes. the, 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 it was the plaque. That's where the original Argyles were formed way back in whatever it was. I forget what year, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Uh, but we That's could track right. that history right through until where the, the Hamilton Regiment was formed. It was just amazing. You know, Bill, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because I can't even imagine the emotion that you and Rebecca felt visiting that site because I, I know, Bill, that you respect history and Rebecca respects history. You respect tradition, and there's so much history in Hamilton with respect to the Argyle Regiment being formed uh, so many years ago and still so prominent today because of the amazing leadership that's involved with the Argyle Regiment. So I am delighted uh, that we were involved, the Argyle Regiment was involved, the people that were involved, also how Canada was represented, the RCMP, and you made mention of that, Bill, the RCMP leading the procession. Uh, and, and, and it's my understanding the four horses that were ridden by the RCMP were were owned by the Queen and gifts to the Queen because the Queen, uh, Her Majesty, as she communicated to us, loved animals, loved horses, loved her corgi dogs. The other thing, Bill, that touched me emotionally, they had two of her corgi dogs yeah. in front of Buckingham Palace yesterday as the procession went by wouldn't it be wonderful to read the minds of those dogs because when we visited the queen in her apartment those dogs were right beside her and very special to her and and that's kind of what made so many things made the queen special but bill you know if there's a legacy for the queen and for the monarch i would have to say Queen Elizabeth, from my perspective, the Argyle's perspective, uh, and our reflection on on those so many things that that she leaves as a legacy. But the one important thing, unification of people, unification of people in the world, because there's many problems in the world today. The Queen had the great leadership to have the ability to unify people at all levels. Quite amazing. And Charles, let's wish Charles, I watched him during the funeral, Bill, and you and I... And he, was, he was very emotional, world, wasn't he? Uh, yes. You and I and everybody in the world lost a queen, but he lost his mother. And that must be extremely difficult because, number one, he has to assume a huge responsibility. He has to follow perhaps the most remarkable leader in the world today. Enormous responsibility. The other thing, Bill, I hope we in the world, the public, allow him some time privately to grieve at the loss of his mother because that's a very difficult situation to be thrust into. He's been in the public eye his whole life, but he was thrust into the public eye for the last 10 minutes like nobody has ever been in public before. So it's my wish that we allow him some grieving time. And you know, Bill, sometimes, uh, you know, it takes a long time to heal. And everybody grieves differently. Our regiment when Nathan was lost, everybody in our regiment grieved in a different way. And we reminded them, if we could, 
try and remember the good times. So let's hope the public allow him time to grieve, time to remember the good times, get his feet on the ground, and take on this enormous responsibility. And I am hoping that he uh, visits Canada after his coronation and has a visit with the Argyle Regiment that his mother was in charge of for 72 years. Well, I know we're just about out of time, but uh, it will be a return because Charles has been here a number of times as well. And and again, yesterday, you do a lot of reminiscing, and we were reminding of the the last time Charles and Camilla were in Hamilton, actually. There's a picture someplace, I know it was in the spec when it happened, of the two of them on the balcony, uh, you know, at Sir Alan McNabb's old house at Dundurn Castle, which apparently yes. I found out during that visit that she, Camilla, is is a descendant of, of, of Sir Alan McNabb. So, I mean, there's a, a Hamilton connection there. And everything is a very tight-knit circle here. I mean, we're talking about the military history, but there's there's a royal history to this as well. So it's just incredible when you start getting people to tell these stories now, you know, the time they met the Queen. They, like I say, the Balancins, and I've heard from so many other people that might have been there, even the Queen's last visit a number of years ago, uh, when they had the big, uh, of course, reception for her with the Argyles at Cops College see him at that time so there's a lot of great memories i think that that we're all going to hold on to for a long while uh ron as always i appreciate the time today i know that you loved the time you spent with the queen and and that's something that you're going to hold and cherish for the rest and i'm glad you had some time to share some of that with us this morning and thank you bill for allowing us to reflect on the situation that has occurred since september the 8th we really appreciate it bill and we thank you thank you ron foxcroft appreciate it fox uh, of course, uh, from Fluke Transport of Fox 40 and a past honorary colonel of the Argonne and Sutherland Highlanders who uh, told us just a week or so ago about that special audience that he had with the Queen at Buckingham Palace uh, in honor of Nathan Cirillo. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.